Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 304, recorded June 8th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 119. Security Now is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to Squarespace.com slash security now. And be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20% off. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, visit netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security online and uh, privacy, too. And here he is, our uh, our guru, our leader, our fearless leader, Mr. Steve Gibson. Actually, he's full. he's fearless, but he scares the hell out of me. Uh, from GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, creator of Spinrite and a lot of great utilities, and and now uh, the king of passwords, too. Did you get some good reaction on the uh, Haystacks episode last week? Tons of reaction. I didn't want, I didn't want to make this Q&A all about the reaction to last week's Password Haystacks episode. So it's about 50-50. Um, some great comments, some things that I sort of forgot to mention that people brought up. Um, some very valid criticism saying, you know... Uh, padding is not the same as entropy. So we've got some, some good things to cover and not too much news today, but some interesting news. So I think overall a great podcast for I everybody. Can't, I can't wait. Uh, before we uh, get started there, I'm going to do a quick commercial. We've got, uh, we've got some security updates, as you said, but the Q&A is the, the heart of the matter. Our 119th question and answer session with Mr. Gibson. Uh, brought to you today by the folks at Squarespace. You know, I, uh, I, I, we use Squarespace for our inside uh, Twit blog, inside.twit.tv. I'm still using WordPress on Leoville, my blog, uh, partly because I want to feel your pain. <laughs> it really is a good experience for me to go in there every, every, every few days and see, oh, well, I have to do a security update. I have to FTP. I have to do all this. Uh, but it's part of the, one of the ways I kind of keep up on the, the real world. The beauty of Squarespace, you never have to worry about that. Squarespace is hosting plus software content management software that's fantastic um if you go you you could try it right now yesterday when we were at e3 it was pretty funny um uh brian brushwood said it's so easy to set up a squarespace website we were standing uh we were we did the ad while we were standing at e3 at the modern warfare you know call of duty booth and there was a countdown like a, a minute countdown before or something like that before the call of duty trailer was going to begin and and brushwood said i bet you somebody can create a website on squarespace featuring the countdown before the countdown runs out and a number of people took the challenge i went on twitter and there were three or four websites in squarespace for the countdown wow. so it just shows you not only how quickly you can make a squarespace site 
But how quickly you can make a great square. I'll see if I can find those uh, countdown sites. How quickly you can make a great Squarespace site. If you are, uh, you have a website, but maybe you're ready to move to a great hoster, uh, a great, great software. You could try it for free right now at squarespace.com slash security now. If you don't have a site, you got to get one. And more importantly, if family, friends, or your favorite business don't have a site. You know, Alex Lindsay went into a restaurant. He, they didn't have a site, so he went to squarespace.com. He clicked the try it free button, set up the site. All you need is a, a name, a password, and an email address that they could send you for the password uh, to remember it. He set up a site before he left the restaurant. And what he did is he gave him the site name and password. And said, it's yours for two weeks. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. Enjoy. If you like it, it's yours. I, you know, no charge. Because he liked the restaurant so much. That's the kind of thing you could do with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash security now. Take a look at the examples. Uh, in every area, uh, from blogging to business, from photography to nonprofits, music, media, and publishing, and more. Squarespace.com slash security now. You will be blown away. Here's the Jars of Clay website. You know, this is a big band, and uh, the fact that they use Squarespace for their site is pretty impressive. Squarespace, it's a good-looking site, too. That's the other thing I like about Squarespace. You know, not you can't tell it's a Squarespace site. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not um, – there's not – there's most web software, content management software, all looks the same, not Squarespace. You see they've got their Twitter in, included in there. They've got a player so that you can listen to their new album. I mean, this is this is awesome. Tour dates – their Facebook page, their photo gallery. I mean, how how easy is this? And it's all running on Squarespace. That's that's how powerful this is. I want you to try it today. Squarespace.com slash twit. You don't have to be a major recording artist to have a Squarespace site. Just just somebody who wants a website. Just go there right now. Squarespace.com slash twit and sign up today. Squarespace.com. I mean, slash security now. Let's give you credit, Steve. Squares- oh, that'd be nice. Yeah, squarespace.com slash security now. All right, Steve. Uh, happy IPv6 day. What the hell does yeah. that mean? Well, I noted months ago that this date, June 8th, would fall on a Wednesday. And so I thought, hey, cool. That'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll actually be talking to each other. We'll be recording a podcast on IPv6 day. Yeah. Um, my biggest disappointment, though... Is there's no fancy Google logo for it? Oh, you'd think they have a Google. Uh, you oh, know, d- d- there's Google, Google logos for like when people discover navel lint. I mean, you know, yeah, and there's nothing just here. Nothing ridiculous. Just a blank and old Google. I I went there and I thought, okay, come on, give us something really cool. But then I, you know, Rube Goldberg plumbing or something. But no, <laughs> <laughs> we got nothing. Well, and I imagine Google's fairly involved in IPv6, Dave. This is in their interest, isn't it? They're one of the big people and Facebook and Yahoo and a number of other big ones. You know, it's, it's first of all, it's, it means really nothing for end users. The idea is for, for sites to, for major websites to bring up IPv6 services sort of as a dry run, sort of as a test. And the idea is to sort of test the infrastructure, let the engineers See it in use. See if anything happens. I'll have I'll have more news next week when I've been able to aggregate the reactions from what's going on today. I've seen some indications that that some some small percentage, like zero point zero two percent of the net, might have connectivity problems. If 
as a consequence of this being activated, their traffic happens to go over IPv6 through really no effort of their own, except that their infrastructure or their, you know, the extra structure is is using IPv6 and if there are problems. So where would it, the problem lie? I mean, who, well, is it my router that I'm going to have a problem with? Is it? Well, here's here's the deal. The entire Internet today is IPv4, which means every single piece of equipment between you and me, Leo, or you you sending out this real-time stream and every single one of the listeners knows IPv4. That is to say that that's the protocol that wraps the, the data packets which move from point to point. Today, it is not the case that even the majority of the Internet's plumbing equipment knows IPv6, which is to say, for most equipment on the net, if an IPv6 packet came to it, it wouldn't know what to do with it. It would just ignore it because there's a, a version that's, uh, I think it's a byte in the IP header that says, this is my version. All of them in the world say four. Right. Every packet out there has a four in there. Right. So when, and that's one of the things the router hopefully checks you know, as the data is coming in, it checks to make sure that it's what well, it's four. Well, when packets arrive and that it's six, the router is going to go, huh? Because I mean, everything's different. The big, well, the huge, the 128 bit IP, for example. You hope it number, checks because if it doesn't check, it'd be worse than the huh. It would barf, well, right? Yeah, and who know? I mean, when we who know the way things are engineered. Since everything has always been four, it might very well be that there's equipment out there that doesn't check, which right. means it'll, it might crash, it might stumble, it might hang, it might drop the packet. But the, the, but the key is for it to work, for IPv6 natively to work, every single piece of equipment, and there's a lot of it, between any two IPv6 endpoints – has to know IPv6. Now there are tunneling solutions where you can you can chop up I, bigger IPv6 packets into into multiple IPv4. You know, hide them in an IPv4 so that the existing infrastructure still works. Like if it had to pass through a, real, a realm of the internet that couldn't transit for whatever reason or wasn't yet able to IPv6, you could have tunneling endpoints that re rewrap the incompatible IPv6 in IPv4 it goes where it needs to go then it gets unwrapped again so i mean there are, there are those kinds of kludgy solutions but those are no better than like nat routing that we have because we're running out of ip space so ultimately what what, what the goal is everything will be running ipv6 and still know about ipv4 but we're an unknown length away from that i mean even companies which are have their own ipv6 big monster allocations they'll be their traffic will be converted to ipv4 not very far after it gets out of their facility because that's all the net actually works on today it doesn't actually work on ipv6 yet except there are some sites that are today on june 8th giving it a shot sort of to you know like offering their services there to, to see how it goes. So you have to uh, request a IPv6 packet. It won't just spit it out at you. Well, you have the, the way it works is you have 
we've talked about TCP IP stacks and every TCP IP stack for several generations of our operating systems has been IPv6 capable. So, for example, when you enable IPv6 on XP and there's like a command you can do to turn it on in XP, when you do that, then it will attempt to issue traffic over IPv6. And when that fails, as it invariably does today, it falls back to IPv4. So eventually, when you connect that machine to something that does know about IPv6, then it'll work. And it'll just sort of work seamlessly. So, you know, Mac OS Ten has had it for several versions. I just saw this morning where, or like, at what point they added it? It might have been Leopard. Is that was that a while ago? Um, yeah, Leopard. Now, Slow Leopard's the current. I bet you they did it in Leopard. That would make sense. Okay, Leopard. Yeah, and and you know, Unix has had it since two thousand two, um, and Microsoft's been experimenting with it. You can like install an experimental IPv six stack even as far back as Windows two thousand. The Microsoft research folks had that working and and so you know it's in all the current operating systems but right now there's no way and if you were to plug two ipv6 machines directly into each other with a crossover cable they'd happily talk ipv6 but it's the connectivity problem it's all the equipment in between every single piece of it has to be able to handle ipv6 the or translate to ipv4 tunnel and then translate back we're just not there yet. Well, I mean, we're not even close. I'm having to fight to get IPv6 service on my T1s, and it's like I had to go through a big conference call with Level 3 to get it, you know, at, at GRC. So it's not like just happening. Right. It's, you know, and it won't what? really be until it'll, it's just like raising the debt ceiling on the U.S. It won't be until the <laughs> very, until it absolutely has to be done right. that, that somebody will say, oh, okay, fine. And then people will scurry around and IP and, chicken you know, we're playing. Yeah. So right. Dr. Mom asks in the chat room, and I'm sure everybody wants to know, is there anything we need to do as end users? Um, at some point, our routers uh, will become an interesting issue. That is, if, if cable suppliers need to provide their customers with more IP space because the cable supplier itself is out of IPv4 for its own use... Then they would be they would they would upgrade their cable modems and or their associated routers. It's conceivable that at some point an ISP could say we're discontinuing IPv4 support to you, customer X, on a certain date. And it would be a ways out in the future, in which case Customer X would need to go to Staples or Fry's or, you know, Amazon, wherever, and get, you know, upgrade their router. Maybe, maybe flash the, 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 the version of the kernel on their router to a new version. That's possible, but probably just get a new router because the old one's going to be old anyway. Um, and, and then that router would be able to understand IPv6 on the public side. Now, if it, if it passed IPv6 through on the private side, then finally all of these machines that have been sitting around our operating systems for the last couple of years waiting 
would suddenly be able to use IPv6. I mean, it doesn't do anything really more for us. We'll be talking about it in detail. It's got some, you know, security uh, IPsec protocol built in to the definition rather than being layered on top. So there are a, a few nice things about it. Mostly it's, you know, massive address expansion and also has a bunch of features that make routing tables for the internet, which are already a problem because they're just so fractured and fragmented, it it's it's a it brings a new architecture there that allows the the internet's infrastructure to work a little bit more efficiently. But what I'm betting is any home router, any Soho router that people buy will always be offering IPv4 and DHCP, so that you know our older appliances, which are not our, our operating systems that we've had for the last couple of years, will always be able to talk to the router with IPv4, and then it will do the translation to IPv6 to get out onto the public wide area network the, on the WAN side. So, but, you know, this is still years away. You know, and there's also been a lot of speculation that what will happen is that uh, there'll be ISP-level NAT translation, and you won't even see it. Precisely. I wouldn't be at all surprised. I bet you that. I mean, that seems like the, you know, that's going to what nobody's going to. You're going to ask my mom to upgrade her router. Yeah. (laughs) The ISP would get all these calls. I mean, there is mess at every level. I mean, this is why there's the inertia and the reluctance is everyone's like, well, if we don't have to do it, we really don't want to. Maybe it'll just go away. Well, it won't go away. It's not going to go away. (laughs) We know that. Yeah. (laughs) It's just a question of how we deal with it. So uh, I rebooted my machine the other day. Uh, I don't remember why. I don't do it often. But I got the notice from Adobe that I was getting a new version of Flash. Which That's why we, you should reboot every day. We've been waiting for. Um, we talked about how uh, there was a new uh, cross-site scripting vulnerability, which was affecting Flash players, and how... Oh, Adobe might as well just give up this notion of quarterly updates. And so what they did was an out of an out of band fix um, for this the zero day vulnerability that we have been speaking of in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Google's Chrome browser got it fast and first. And there is now a new version for Windows, Mac, uh, Linux, Solaris um, and Android. So sort of across the board, um, that's been fixed. So uh, that's good. The big news, the other shoe to drop, essentially, on the RSA fiasco from 90 days ago. I looked back at my blog posting, and that was March 17th, when I went out on a little bit of a limb, and I said, okay, the only way to read what RSA is not telling us is they lost the keys. Right. And, I mean... There just isn't any other way to interpret it. Mm. Well, they have messed up. (laughs) They lost the keys. (laughs) They lost the keys, and we're talking 40 million of them. And in an open letter to RSA's Secure ID customers, the chairman, uh, Art uh, Covillo, uh, said in an interview that RSA... Well, he said in an interview separate from the open letter, he said, RSA is offering to provide security monitoring or replace secure ID tokens for virtually every customer we have. <laughs> every one of them. Every one. So they really did get compromised. They did. Wow. And, uh, it, uh, Fox News also reported that Northrop Grumman was another 
um, defense contractor that had been attacked using compromised credentials, RSA credentials. So uh, they have they have formally admitted that they lost the keys, and now people are saying, okay, I mean, they're saying what you and I were saying three months ago. Why were why were they on their network? Yeah. I mean, why why could those have been compromisable? And the the answer is always the same: convenience. Yeah, it's it's easier. So that's what we did. Well, wow. they've certainly learned the lesson the hard way, and I hope so many other people are paying attention because we don't want everyone to have to learn the lesson the hard way. Be nice if people could, you know, if CEOs or chairmen of the board could say to their uh, CIOs, "Hey." Tell me how this cannot happen to us. Prove to me that it cannot happen to us. So I hope that's happening. We have early feedback from the really cool new Microsoft safety scanner, which remember is the malware and specifically rootkit scanner, which you boot and check your systems. I've seen a number of tweets from people who follow me mentioning that they had found malware on their machine. Microsoft reports that... It's been downloaded at the time of this report, which is pretty recent, uh, 420,000 times and has found and removed malware from 20,000 machines. Um, Looking at what it was that it found, which it it provides feedback to them so they're able to get a sense for what, what it's doing. Seven of the top threats that were found to install malware the malware that this thing found and removed were Java-based exploits. Remember, Java, not JavaScript. I want to make sure I, I, in, in email that I receive and in, in tweets that I see, I see that mistake being made all the time. And so I want to make sure people understand Java is not JavaScript and vice versa. So yes. these are Java-based exploits, not, Java, not in this case, JavaScript-based. Um, however... Uh, the SANS security, the SANS Institute editor Eugene Schultz made a, a good comment um, when when SANS was reporting this. He said, "I believe Microsoft's reported infection rate is too low. Users who do not have a clue concerning how to secure their systems almost certainly have much higher infection rates." Oh, and, and the story did say five percent. So he says, almost certainly have much higher infection rates. And they ain't running any Microsoft scanner software. I, that's, what, yeah. that's exactly his point. He says, yeah. these users are not aware of Microsoft's safety scanner, let alone of how to download and run this tool. But more sophisticated and security aware users are. Microsoft statistics thus, in all likelihood, apply almost entirely to the latter group. So that's a very good point, is that, I mean... Anyone who's running this is already savvy. They're listening to this podcast. They're able to, you know, burn bootable CDs or USBs and reboot systems. You know, this is not your typical user. So, so it says something that 5% of those users are being caught out by Java, by 7 out of 10 are Java-based exploits and finding rootkits on their machine that were otherwise hidden from them. Although, uh, you know, as we noted, uh, when you go to that site, it says you've been sent here by Microsoft support. Presumably, uh, okay. of the people the, sent by Microsoft support, it's like 90% have rootkits. So very, very that may cool. skew those numbers also. It's hard. I, I think you just can't tell from the 5%. It's not meaningful. Yeah. Um, 
I went to docs.google.com uh, an hour ago in order to sit, to put these uh, documents up for you, Leo. Yep. And uh, it was over HTTPS. Certificate Patrol, which is the add-on I have mentioned a number of times and have been liking, popped up what? and said certificate exchanged dot mostly harmless and then huh. at the far right it said docs got got google.com this is the first time i have received that and i was tickled that it did this so what this was doing was this is exactly what it's for and it's a, and so far all it's been doing is popping up every time i go to a site that i haven't visited since i installed certificate patrol it would give me a dialogue saying hey this is you know here's a new certificate i'm that, that i'm in the process of of putting into my cash. And so that's not very informative, although that's how I learned, like, for example, that Facebook is using DigiCert, I think it was. And, and, I, and I looked at them, and their certificates are far less expensive than VeriSign. So, and if Facebook's using it, they're good enough for me too. So I'll be switching and saving myself a lot of money because um, I've been using VeriSign from day one. In this case, Certificate Patrol did what's really cool which is it noted a change in SSL certificates when I revisited a site that I have already visited. In this case, I don't know what Google's doing, but the old certificate, that is the prior one that it had, was only issued 28 days ago, and the new one was issued 13 days ago. And what's nice is it provides you with a side-by-side -side display where you're able to see, you know, like, sort of like your, allow your eyes to just scan down and see what parts have been changed. And, you know, everything was the same except, of course, the serial number, which is a hash that's always going to be different. That was different on the two. And then some MD5s and other stuff toward the bottom were different. But And then, of course... Uh, the, the issue date and the expiration date and how much longer the, the, the certificates have. And so, and it commented that these certificates, this certificate was exchanged even though the prior one wasn't near expiring. So it does some nice little interpretation for you to sort of help you understand what's going on. So I just wanted to raise it because to our, to our listeners, it's the first time I've had a certificate change and it works. And of course, what this does is this alerts you to the if there were a man in the middle attack, if your employer or your school district or somebody were um, changing certificates on you and and using a, a different cert in order to filter your SSL traffic, this would pick it up. And there's no way you could you you could be fooled because the certificate would change even if the if the issued name were the same. Um, for example, if, if a government was going to play this game, and we talked to a story about a story recently where some some governments were uh, trying to use fraudulent certificates, presumably to to monitor their citizens, even though they were over SSL connections. So this prevents that, or at least alerts you that you know something fishy is going on, and then also helps to interpret what it is. So it's very cool. Very interesting, yeah. <laughs> and this has got to be the best thing I've seen in a long time. Uh, in our attacks and breaches section, I, I my subhead was endless Sony breaches. and oh, it just it, won't it, stop. It just, I know. We're at 13 now. <laughs> Different breaches of Sony. And um, my friend on Twitter, Simon Zarafa, uh, 
sent me a link this morning that's got to be the funniest and best website I've seen. The URL is hasonybeenhackedthisweek.com. And, I mean, it's a legitimate website. And I went there, and there's a, you know, a big red yes with a frowny face. <laughs> he probably doesn't have to update this site that often. <laughs> so, has Sony been hacked this week dot com yes. now exists. Yes. And then it says latest hack, so you can always see when the latest hack is. Yep. And that in is fact, a hoot. Isn't that great? Has Sony been hacked this week dot com? I mean, that's the kind of website you really don't want to have your name in. But Sony mm. does. Uh, attack number 13 occurred two days ago on June 6th, which was Monday. And it was Sony's European website for professional broadcasting equipment. The attacker of the website said that he just used standard injection techniques for SQL. Now they're standard, Leo. They're not even, you know, oh, yeah. a big deal. It's like, oh, yeah. We go get them at this. the SQL injection store. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in order to access the database where he got information of usernames, plain text, passwords, mobile numbers, and emails for around 120 users. Not not 35 million like we've seen recently, but 120. Um, in another attack Sony had previously experienced. So apparently there was some overlap. Um, the person to blame seems to be a Lebanese hacker known by the name of IDAHC. And he's the same one behind the attacks on the Canadian Sony Ericsson site that took place uh, last month in May. And he was quoted as saying, yeah, I was bored and I play the game of the year, Hacker versus Sony. <laughs> well, and now this makes me wonder if uh, it's really Sony's fault at this point, because now they're really a target. I mean, it is, it's obviously their fault, but how many of us uh, targeted by this many hackers would would have a similar problem, I, I guess, is the question. Well, and as I said last week when we were talking about it, it's a matter of hardening. Yeah. And hardening is hard. And Sony obviously had never hardened their sites. They're learning now. And again, I hope everyone, I hope the industry is paying attention. And chairmen of the board are saying to, you know, I mean, making their... CIOs prove to them that they're not responsible. You know, SQL is a is a real problem because it mixes commands in with the data so that so that you know which makes it very easy to produce back-end database driven websites, but this is the consequence. Well, is, if you don't sanitize your inputs. I mean, yeah. which is very is a very straightforward, very well-known thing. Yep. And it's just kind of shocking. Also, uh, you know, a lot sometimes these uh, these MySQL injection uh, attacks take advantage of flaws, patched flaws in MySQL, and so you got to keep MySQL up to date. And and also sometimes many people are are using you know canned packages which they drop into an existing server. Oh yeah, I don't think these, these guys are script kiddies. Yeah, they're hacking this. This is all stuff that's well known, and these canned packages are wide open. Yep, exactly. Um, we did. There was one. One more site was breached, which was the PBS had their site breached. Um, I, I, I it caught my eye. I got a kick out of it because uh, PBS themselves said that hackers brought, broke into their website and posted a phony story on the PBS website, falsely claiming that deceased rapper Tupac was alive and well <laughs> and living in New Zealand. Of course, he is. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, the group. Uh, 
Lulz Security, L-U-L-Z, SEC, Lulz SEC, uh, is believed to have attacked PBS due to them being upset about the WikiLeaks story. So here again, it's, it seems that, well, if you want to attack a site, the site's just there waiting for you to do so. Crazy. Yeah. And I got three little blurbs from the Twitterverse that I want to share. Um, Andronicus, whose actual name is Andrew uh, Skertvelt, Skelt, Skert, I'm sorry, Andrew. S K R E T V E D T. Skritvet. Skritvet. Thank you, Leo. I don't know. He says, says, so I'm staring at 26 USD slash BTC. So at the the time that he tweeted this, we're now at $26 per Bitcoin. No. He says, if you're still holding your 50, how does it feel? To have thirteen hundred dollars of value. Wow! He spent. I spent mine back at thirty-five cents. Did, do you still have your fifty? Yeah. See, uh, the no. only reason it's inflating at this rate is because people are using it for money laundering. It has to be. It has yeah. to be. Right? Mm-hmm. How could it possibly yeah. be worth twenty-six dollars a bitcoin? Well, it's scarce. It's hard to make them, you know. It's and scarce you get, and it's useless. You, you get government, uh, you get government employees knocking on your door, wondering if you're growing weed. My if, fingernail if, clippings if are scarce. It doesn't mean they're worth twenty six dollars each. No, I got fingernail clippings too, Leo. <laughs> but mine so are. Yours are not that scarce. I'm just saying scarcity yeah. alone. There's no inherent value. I'm very puzzled by this. Well, I think right. it's money laundering. It, it could be scarce and abandoned. And I've seen some interesting criticism recently. You know, people talking about how this doesn't make economic sense. I mean, it, it to me, all of these arguments sound a little, little uh, evangelical. You know, I mean, like they're like they, they've got a cross to bear. I'm all I'm talking about. All we did on the, on the podcast was talk about the very cool technology, yeah. and I analyzed it from a crypto standpoint. And it's just bulletproof. I mean, it was beautifully designed for what it is. So, yeah. There, I, actually, I think this is what's going on. There's speculation going on because there are some people who think, yeah, maybe I should buy up some Bitcoins because it's possible this will become a non-governmental conser- uh, currency, a val- valid non-governmental currency. And down the road, this, as you said, there is a limited number of Bitcoin. This could be a very valuable, scarce resource. It's, it's got to be speculation at this point. I would agree. I think it has to be speculative. Yeah. Crazy. Um, Muon Capture, whose real name is Michael Bowman in Mobile, Alabama, he said, tried the MS Sweeper rootkit detector slash removal tool mentioned on last SN episode. Doesn't work on a true crypted hard drive. And I, I meant to bring that up, which is why I wanted to say it now. Many people have tweeted that fact that it is not true crypt compatible. Um, and that's, of course, true because TrueCrypt, remember, has to boot from the special boot sector that it has, which then enables its boot time encryption and then it basically installs a short-term driver to get the OS going, at which time the OS takes over with a, a TrueCrypt driver in the OS in, in a seamless handoff. But that what that means is and this of course is why you have truecrypt is to the outside world it's just gibberish it's random right. literally pseudo random noise so unfortunately the only way to run it on your system would be to 
to go through the labor or the time intensive process of de removing TrueCrypt from the hard drive, then running the scanner on it, and then re true true encrypting it, which I think few people are like are likely to do. But I did want to acknowledge all the people that have made the comment that whoops, this thing won't work if you've got your drive encrypted, and that's absolutely the case. Hey, here's it would a, be. Go ahead. Go, uh, just a side note on the Bitcoin story today. Uh, Senator Charles Schumer of New York and Joe Manchin of West Virginia wrote to Attorney General Eric Holder a letter expressing concerns about Silk Road, which is a Bitcoin exchange site, and the use of Bitcoins to make purchases there. The senators have asked the Attorney General and the DEA to shut down (laughs) Bitcoin. Well, they can't. They can't. No. Um. This is interesting. The the the, uh, the Senate is now aware of Bitcoin. is a little concerned. Uh, yeah. What if the government closed the bit bank accounts associated with Bitcoin? Well, they they can attack the U.S. domestic exchanges. Right. That they could get because they have you know a, a known, clear public presence. They cannot do anything about exchanges offshore. Right outside the u.s and they certainly can't do anything about the network itself it's a peer-to-peer service there's no there's 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 no central place to shut it down right but they could they could close the membrane that allows bitcoins to get turned into real currency correct and well they could close it domestically so right it would just be the u.s that didn't have access to it or unless we used a non-u.s provider to to do that so Yes, technology meets the Senate once again. Yeah, but although in this case they say it is a, they feel it's a drug issue, a drug laundering issue, and it's just money. money I mean, laundering. it's yeah. I mean, sure, the bat. You know, once upon a time the internet was pure was it was only porn. That's all it had. You know, now it's way more than that. So, <laughs> fortunately, the internet survived the porn stage, yeah. just as VHS did and and DVD did. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I just don't blame, I never blame the technology. The technology is neutral. It's, it's ethically and morally neutral. It just provides a capability. So people will be people. Um, Zeno, who's Joe in Wisconsin asked, what was the max range of the portable dog killer? (laughs) Now, (laughs) uh, there's going to be the return of the portable dog killer. You're going to make um, so one? Want, You're going to make a new one? I have to. Um, I spent a really annoyed afternoon uh, with a friend of mine barbecuing on Sunday with this little yappy dog next door that will not stop. And Mark has done, he's been so patient with the neighbors. Uh, he's, you know, he texts them and then they apologize, but they're not at, at home. And then they come back and they bring the dog in. And this has been a year now he's been putting up with this little yappy dog. Now, many people in response to the the portable dog killer story, and if anyone listening to this doesn't know what we're talking about, we're not talking about something that kills dogs. That's the whimsical name for something I built when I was 16. It does not kill dogs. It annoys them. <laughs> it, it, yes, it trains them. Uh, it's an acoustical trainer. So... um Many people have asked for plans for the portable dog killer, and many people have said, hey, Steve, you know, here's a link to one. Well, I've purchased, out of curiosity, about six of these things and given them to Mark 
to try to use. And they don't work. They're just useless. So <clears throat> I will be recreating. This is a background project. I don't know what the timeline will be, but I will document it. I know that it will be based on a 1,600-watt tweeter, um, which mm. ought to do the job. Um, mm. And uh, probably a, a piece of tuned PVC piping in order to provide aiming. And it will we'll set up a standing wave in the pipe in order to maximize the effect. Oh. Um, so aiming anyway, and amplification. Mm. And amplification and directionality. So... Um, It'll Will you sell project. this for Bitcoin if people want to buy it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to sell it, but I'll I'll fully document the project with you know plans and and everything that I went through, and it'll be on the website at some point in the future. So you should tweet. I saw this you should tweet. tweet about that tweeter. I think. I thought <laughs> I saw this, and I thought, okay, well, I ought to tell people what's going on. That there will be a return of the portable dog killer, and anybody who needs a you know, and uh, this is going to be overkill uh, probably, uh, but you know. If you're going to make something that's loud, you might as well make it as loud as you can. So, and he's got some problems with birds and you know, up up in the trees too. This ought to just blow them right out of the tree. Oh, so, geez, Louise. <laughs> we're going to have to we're going to have to get the ASPCA to uh, monitor this podcast pretty soon. And I do have a, a nice uh, bit of spin right feedback from Mark Botner, who wrote on June seventh, so just yesterday. He said, "Dear Steve." A coworker and friend of mine recently told me about Security Now episode 291, which was all about the Stuxnet worm. As I listened to more episodes of Security Now, I figured out that you were indeed the inventor of the Gibson light pen, oh, yeah. which I finally recall from my early days of learning to program computers. He said, also, as I listened to Security Now, I became curious about Spinrite. Because I frequently troubleshoot, diagnose, and repair PCs for my family, extended family, and friends. I did not purchase Spinrite immediately, but planned to use it the next time I had a problem with the hard disk. Well, as luck would have, shortly after listening to episode 291, the hard disk in my teenage son's PC started making a strange noise, and the system ran very slowly. Normally, I just replace disks at the first instant they start acting unexpectedly because that's usually an early indicator of imminent failure. This time, I purchased Spinrite instead and ran it on my son's system in level 4 mode. Spinrite reported no problems, but the system has worked perfectly ever since, and I have been saved the cost of purchasing a new drive. By my calculations, Spinrite has now paid for itself and is essentially free for all my future use. Thanks for a great product, Mark Botner, Little Rock, Arkansas. And he says, P.S., I'm now listening to all of the Security Now podcasts, starting with episode number one, and are currently up to 64. They're fantastic. Oh, so thank great. you very much, Mark. Awesome. We have questions. You have answers. Steve's got 10 great questions, and uh, we will get to those in just a minute. Before we do, though, let me remind all of our listeners, those who don't know yet and those who do, that we have a 30-day free trial of Netflix for you if you go to netflix.com slash twit. Netflix is that great DVD-by-mail service. Um, you don't have that in Germany, though, do you? I think it's only in the U.S. Yeah. this You should because this is great. So once you subscribe, now I have five discs at a time. You make a list of all the movies you want to see. That just by itself is kind of cool. You see I have 237 movies on here. Uh, you can get one to eight disc subscriptions. I have a five-disc subscription. So they send you the first five discs on your list. 
take as long as you want to watch them. There are no late fees. When you're done, you pop it in the postpaid mailer. And as little as one business day, your next movie on the list is sent to you. And it's very easy. Let's say I want to see Snakes on a Plane next. I just rearrange my list. I've got great list rearrangement features. So now that's number one. You could choose the format. I usually get them on Blu-ray if it's available, but you get to choose. Uh, it is just fantastic. But that's but that's the disc system. They've recently added streaming. And I'll tell you, this is a revolution. There's a reason why 30% of all Internet traffic in primetime in the U.S., is Netflix. People are watching movies. Now, I could tell my son was home over the weekend because all the movies recently watched, they're not me. Happy Tree Friends, Family Guy, and South Park? Definitely my son. So I know what he's been up to. Hey, this is one I just watched, though, if you're a Pink Floyd fan. This is a great documentary on the making of The Dark Side of the Moon. It has some amazing interviews. I'm just going to score that five stars, by the way. And then it gives you more suggestions. For instance, the same... A uh, group that did that Pink Floyd documentary did one on the Doors and on U2's Joshua Tree. I've got some, I've got some watching to do. And the beauty of this is, I go home and I can watch this right away. I can watch it on my Xbox 360, my PlayStation 3, Nintendo Wii. Most Blu-ray players now have Netflix built in. Many TVs do. Of course, your computer, your iPad, your iPhone, even now Android phones, Netflix. It's fantastic. We're going to the J.J. Abrams movie Super 8 tonight. Uh, if I weren't, I'd probably watch that new that his Star Trek, which I loved, his reboot of Star Trek. That's on streaming as well. I'll tell you, it's fantastic. Netflix.com slash twit. I know you're a Netflix member, but if you aren't, give it a try. Netflix.com slash twit. And if you have friends who have not yet signed up, please do, your, do yourself a favor. Um, go in there and, and try it today. 30 days free. Netflix.com slash twit all right steve i've got questions for you are you ready you betcha number one comes from shawl in israel a third year geography student at ben gurion university and an avid ubuntu user he says steve i just watched the last security now in the next show can you please talk about how the new quantum computing will affect cryptography and passwords i think you got this one from twitter because he's got all the hashtags in it yep he tweeted this and I thought, okay, how can I best describe the problem that quantum computing will represent to cryptography? And the analogy that first popped into my mind was it will be very similar to what will happen to bank vaults when we have teleportation. <laughs> You're right, Steve. That could be a problem. <laughs> Beam beam me in, Scotty. Yes. So what you're and saying, I think, is that teleportation and quantum computing are equally likely in our future. Exactly. Yeah. That is, that's why the analogy works on so many levels. Teleportation, of course, <laughs> completely destroys the utility of bank vaults. However, Fort Knox, would be in, <laughs> Fort Knox would be in trouble. Yes. Yes. And it's extremely <laughs> unlikely to happen. In any time so soon. So you're, you're skeptical of the claims people have made for quantum computing. Well, okay, here's why. The way a true quantum computer would function, if anyone knew how to make it, and if it was of sufficient complexity to be a threat to crypto, is it would instantly be able to, it would be able to instantly try every possible key. 
That's what a quantum computer does. Oh. It tries all of them at once. It's massively so parallel. <laughs> it's the end of crypto as we know it. It's back to smoke signals. So just as a so, recap, of course, everybody's listened to your fantastic explanation of crypto going back way back when to early episodes. But, but modern crypto relies on the difficulty of factoring large primes. Yes. And so there are a number of ways a quantum computer could end crypto as we know it. One is that it could simply say, oh, here's, here's the factor of this big prime. Right. We, the, um, one of the ways that crypto works is that, it rely, you know, for example, public key crypto relies on, on that we don't have no matter. I mean, we've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. All the best minds in the world have tried, the math guys, to come up with a way of, of determining what two factors are of a really big prime. And they can't. Or, I mean, what, what two what two prime factors are of, of a large composite, you know, base, base, basically to perform a prime factorization. And there's just no solution for it that we've found. Presumably, a quantum computer, that's one of the first things you ask it, is when you, you know, hatch it or grow it or whatever you do, is, you know, do this. The other possibility is that you could set up a problem with any kind of a key where it's literally able to brute force the key instantly it would try all bit combinations at once that's what a quantum computer can do wow so it's the end of life as we well crypto <laughs> life as we know it and again it we're nowhere near it happening there will you know the it needs to have a level of complexity that can handle that and and it's it's purely theoretical at this point in the first place and when we start having them, they'll, they'll, they won't be able to be that complex. And in order to be complex enough, the, the challenge just scales exponentially. So You're basically um, saying it's as likely as an Einstein-Rosen bridge from here yeah. to uh, Mars. Yeah. It's not something that we need to worry about today. And we'll have plenty of notice. <laughs> um, Aren't there – it seems to me I, – I, maybe I'm wrong – it's like cold fusion. There are people who claim to have kind of done this or something like it. Or is that not the case? Is it purely speculative? It's, well, it's, it's, it's absolutely in the lab where you got to wear goggles and there's <laughs> cool like smoke moving around the floor and you're in a university where you don't pay your own bills. And I mean, it's way out and they're able this, to say, there, oh, there's, look, this, we, there, there's this company in, in, I seem to remember in Vancouver that claims to have made one. Yeah. I well. remember, you know, people, well, I was doing this TV show up there. They said, well, we got to interview them. And I had the same reaction. I said, well, no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> they say they've sold one to Lockheed Martin. As long as they don't give one to the NSA, we're fine. Well, I'm sure the Lockheed Martin is just a front for the NSA. <laughs> they sold with a Lockheed Martin, which may be the reason that they were cracked with RSA secure ID. Actually, mm. Lockheed Martin wouldn't need to have secure ID. Mm. They just, you know, crack it instantly. Hmm. Uh, moving right along to question <laughs> number two. Daniel Summers, also from a, a Twitter question, at Dan, Dan in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, your hash on the client comment got me thinking. Is there a good way to have secret salt on the client? Would secret matter? You better untwist this tweet. 
Yeah. Um, I made a, just an offhand comment, at, threw it out there at one point last week, saying that if, our, if when we're logging into websites, the website we're logging into were to locally hash our password, then all of these problems that we've been discussing disappear. That is, the client, the browser, would hash it turning whatever we use, I mean, it could be, hi, mom. Um, actually, that's probably a bad example, but I mean, it, it could be something very simple. The browser would hash it so that only the hash would go over the line, the, you know, the, the, the wire over to the server. So the plain text hash, the, the, the plain text password would never be available to be stolen and so easily reused elsewhere, which is what we've been seeing. We're, and, and we're complaining that, like Sony, apparently, never hashed a password in his life. Sony just stores them all <laughs> in plain text. You know, all the ones that get out are in plain text. I think they said um, they hashed them. Didn't they say they hashed them? Well, people are, I mean, hackers are posting plain text passwords from Sony. If it's an unsalted hash, can you solve it with rainbow tables? Um. If well, you can solve it with a rainbow table if the hash is of a, is up to a certain size, ah. and I think I've seen we're at like six or maybe seven characters. Because remember, you know, as my own you know right. um, haystacks page shows, if you're solving for a large character set, there's I mean the, the number of possible combinations goes up very fast, and that means the rainbow table size goes up. Very fast. The whole point of a rainbow table is that it's a sorted list of all the hashes that ah. came out of putting things in, which means you've got to store them somewhere. Right. right. You know, right. And, and yes, mass storage is coming down in price, but, you know, it's, I mean, we're talking escalation. You know, add one character and now you need 95 times as much storage as you had before. So it's straightforward, trivial, and should should have been done to, to hash oh. it sufficiently that you couldn't yes. crack it. I, I think that what we're seeing is this is another symptom of us still being in the in the wild frontier stage of the internet where where anyone is storing a non hashed password. And I wouldn't be at all surprised with JavaScript as prevalent as it is now. I mean it's virtually ubiquitous that that it would be a, it's a great idea to hash the password in the client so that it's always obscured so the user sees something friendly what and before it goes anywhere it's turned into something that looks like pure gibberish all high entropy and then that's what gets sent to the server sergey romanov who one would think is one of the last members of the russian royalty but in fact lives in minneapolis uh, suggests he's he's got a solution this he i must have said this before last week that he knows what your password secret is. I yes. got it. He says, I think I already know the solution for stronger passwords that you are going to talk about next week. And I agree this will change many passwords of security. Now, listeners, I've been listening for more than a year now. And just as you are, I like assembly language. I used to practice my programming skills many years ago on my 8088 processor, an MK88 with 256K of RAM. He's, he is Russian. He says that's the Belarus version of the IBM PC is the MK88. Wow. 
Since then, with the invention of... I should read like this. Since then, with the invention of virtual memory addressing in 386 and advancement of scripting languages, I've lost interest in programming as profession. So he says, here's his technique. Use, he says, let me put it in one sentence. Use the whole range, all 255 ASCII characters when creating your passwords. For example, in a Windows-based PC, do so by pressing... Alt plus 137, that'll give you a capital A tilde, right? Uh, this way, instead of entropy limiting only, uh, entropy limited only to the number of characters available on the keyboard, which is roughly 26 plus 26 plus 10 plus 32, those are the typable characters, 26 without any modifier keys, then shift, alt, uh, and so forth. Or in other words, 94 keys. One can use all eight possible bits of 255 ASCII character range and thus achieve a maximum entropy per character entered. Now, I don't know how you... On the Mac, it's very different. You can't use Alt-137. You have to press Option, Shift, and, you know, it's a modifier key combination. So he says, try to guess, for instance, brace A tilde percent... I don't know what that is, a little angstrom mark. Then another A tilde, then an A circumflex, then a M dash, then a less than A circumflex, and then a, a, a cross, and then a smart left quote. <laughs> anyway, I'll, you get the idea. Uh, first one seems to be harder, but don't you agree? But using this password scheme represents a small difficulty for smartphones. Yeah, and Linux because ASCII characters are not simply typed using such operating systems, but I'm sure apps are written to do it. Did I guess right, Steve? If I did, can I have a copy of Spinrite signed by a author? <laughs> signed, Sergei Romanov, Minneapolis. So, actually, I noticed that in his little sample, I wonder if he's trying to claim it as a registered trademark because he's got a, the he's got last a, character in there as a registration, you know, the circle R. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, okay, so the problem, first of all, yes, you, if you, if you had... An operating system that made it practical to enter those, and I would I would go even further and say Unicode, which is sixteen bits more even than eight bits. If there was some way to do that, and if the website and if the web form you were entering it into accepted it, and if the website at the other end accepted oh, it, oh, that's a bigger if. And that's the big if. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing, I've had a lot of feedback from people saying, gee, Steve, I tried to use, you know, your, the, the haystacks approach right. and put one of each type of character in explicitly. And I couldn't, you know, nothing I could do worked. And so, so the big problem is that the recipients of the, well, there's two big ones. The recipients need to be able to handle any kind of character you could throw at them, but also, you need to be able to input it reliably. I mean, yes, we all know all of those old IBMers, the alt something. I mean, I use alt 7 to give me a bullet on my IB, on my PC all the time. Um, or is it control 7? I think, no, it's alt. Oh, and, and like 145. Anyway, I have a bunch of those codes memorized that, that I've used through yeah, the years. Too. Yeah, yeah. But um, there's no standard you know, way to enter those. Uh, precisely. And so, you know, if you're anywhere else on on a different device... Or, um, you know, in a different location where you don't have access to what you entered before, you're out of luck. So I think it's very important, and this is the reason my own Haystacks page 
only focused on that base set of 95 characters because I encountered space also, uh, 33 uh, special cases. I don't know whether space is an alphabetic or a, a, a symbol, but I, anyway, I counted it there. The only reason I, I did that was to say, okay, here's the lowest common denominator. Sure, if your particular use case would allow you to use a wacky character and and that means that the recipient of it understands the wackiness also, by all means, go for it. I mean, that instantly means you, that you're off the reservation completely. Yeah. And, you know, you're, that, that thing is never going to be found. The downside is it's, you know, you, you're, you're in trouble if you need to log in anywhere else that may make it much more difficult to enter those wacky characters. Yeah. Well, nice try. But so, no, no spin right for you. Not, not quite yet. <laughs> Thank you, Sergey. Spasiba. Jared Lysette in Duncannon, Pennsylvania asks, please keep perfect paper passwords. It's still useful, even if it's not passwords. He says there is a use for the perfect password page that uh, Steve has at grc.com, and I don't think you've taken it down. I hope you haven't taken it down. I won't. No. He says you may have overlooked this, but uh, I use it for salt. If you use SHA-512 10,000 times, it still won't prevent a determined hacker. The important thing is, of course, an unguessable salt. So he's saying it's one thing to, to hash it, but another thing to hash it and have a really strong salt key. If you use a known clear text such as turtle as a password and then gain access to the hashes, you'd simply have to figure out how many times they hash, what the salt is. If the number of times they hash is known... And companies, for some reason, like to brag about how many times they hash. Big mistake. Then all you have to do is run an attack to find out the salt. I use perfect passwords to generate the salt for everything I do. Even if you plan on removing it, please leave the salt generator up for everyone. And the page will stay. GRC.com slash passwords. Thank you. Yeah. No, I would keep that up. That's a that's a useful page. You know, not, not everybody wants to use haystacks for a variety of reasons and Question five, Dave Anderson, Grass Valley, California. He says USB prophylactic achieved. <laughs> only um, on this show, Leo, do only... we have US, <laughs> USB prophylaxis. Um, this is in response to the listener who was concerned about using a flash drive after it was connected to an infected computer. And we said, yeah, that's kind of risky because, you know, you could uh, flash drives could be written to. He said, this got me wondering if there are any USB flash drives with write protect switches. Turns out there are, though not in great proliferation. I found this site, which seems to be trying to collect a list of them. Fencepost.net has the post. I'll put a link in our show notes. Seems like a great tool for the purpose of having a maintainable toolkit, which is protected from infections and fits in your pocket, unlike a CD or DVD. And actually, I meant to ask you about this when you brought this up. We said use a CD because that's for sure write only. Um, I mean, read only, but, um, does the hardware protection on a flash drive, is that reliable? Can that be overwritten by software? Um, no, it is, it is enforced at the hardware level inside the drive. And for any listeners who, who don't have ready access, I checked and you can, if you Google USB flash drives with hardware write protection, which is the tail of this URL, 
USB flash drives with hardware wire protection. The first link that Google finds is this post. And it is a nice page that by make and model runs through. I mean, that's what it is, obviously, is a, is a page listing all that. So I just thought that might be of use to our listeners. However, I then encountered something very cool, which is uh, at the, it's our last question of the, of the podcast. And it's one of the two uh, hot tips of the week, which uh, I just completely overlooked. Ah, well, we'll get to that in a moment. We will. Yes, yes. Question six from Lynn in Maine. Lynn has thought about the best passwords ever. Steve, first, the pleasantries. I've been listening to security now for several years and have gradually ratcheted up my security per your suggestions. LastPass, script, Certificate Patrol, to name a few. I really appreciate your going into the nuts and bolts of how things work so I can make informed decisions about security. Now, I just finished listening to 302 and the password revelation, which you would be sharing with us next week. I am now very curious if it's at all like what I've been doing for years. I'm a network engineer for a major cable ISP, and I'm responsible for coming up with the enable passwords for routers, switches, etc. Here's what I do. First, I come up with an 8 to 12 word phrase I can easily remember. Then, I take the first letters of the words of that phrase. Then, I make various substitutions, such as 0 for the letter O, 3 for E, dollar sign for S, etc., then I mix up the capitalization. Then I add punctuation. This has the advantage of being memorable, although some of my coworkers may disagree. <laughs> but I dare any brute force attack to succeed in anything like a reasonable amount of time. Just curious if this will be anything like what you come up with. Can't wait to 303. And I have to say, I actually, uh, and have mentioned before that I use that, I take song lyrics because I can yep. easily remember the song lyric. And then I will use the initials of the uh, first, say, 10 or 12 words of the song lyric, capitalize, punctuate. I don't like using a zero for O and a three for E because that's leet speak, and it's probably the first thing anybody would try. And that was exactly the comment I was going to make, Leo. Yeah. I didn't mention it last week, and I thought I should because I run across uh, comments a number of times. And, and you're right. It's, it, is, it is a well-known, those simple sort of um, visually approximate substitutions are known by the by attackers and are in their dictionary attack arsenal. So that's the one thing that won't get you a lot more safety. Certainly mixing up capitalization, we know why that works, because you have to have an exact match, and adding punctuation, we know why that works, because you have to have an exact match. So those are, those are all good things, but I did want to mention not to depend upon changing letters for numbers that or sim or symbols characters that that look similar because it's really not providing the kind of protection that we that someone would hope yeah i use uh, i use the punctuation and i have an algorithm which i won't tell you for uppercase lowercase uh that is non-obvious uh and then i guess you could if you wanted to put numbers in for letters if you had your own algorithm you know you replaced all e's with you know twos <laughs> that's not going to be likely guessed. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe that's going too far. I don't know. I did want to mention that I've updated the uh, Haystack page with a bunch of links at the bottom of password-related 
web pages that I think anyone who's interested in passwords will find interesting. I found, I, I mean, you can imagine since last week's oh, yeah. podcast, I've had a whole ton of interest. Oh, yeah. And uh, there have been people posting about uh, GPUs, graphics processing units mm-hmm. uh, that are able to to crack through passwords that are too short. Uh, a bunch of interesting analysis of the recent password databases that have been breached. Things showing percentages of of what you know. That's where I know that you know, like you know, your prior, your old favorite password of monkey was number fourteen <laughs> on one database. And which means that everyone was choosing monkey for some reason, which uh, I just it just it just, I just I don't know it's just <laughs> something about monkeys. Isn't that funny? So anyway, I had I mean I certainly wasn't choosing it because I thought everybody else was. No, no, I I gave that up by the way, using that in two thousand four. Just so good. if anybody wants to try to crack my system, it's been it's been some time since I used monkey. Um, Javi Harris in Iowa. Wonders how to get started as a kid. Hey, guys, let me start with this. When I first started listening, I had no clue what any of this security stuff was. I almost gave up, but iTunes insisted that I had subscribed to your podcast. (laughs) So with a great deal of patience, I've slowly started to really understand all the topics you cover. Javi, well done. That's great. What really got me interested is how easy it is to be safe and even easier to be unsafe. I didn't realize that a simple change of your password could make a huge change. All of this crazy hashing and salting passwords still sometimes makes me dizzy, but I think I have the overall concept. I will be forever a listener, and I hope to learn a lot more. Wow, that is so cool. Oh, before my question, did I mention I was 16? Now my question. What can we as teens do to make our computers more secure? Yeah, it really is teens that seem to be uh, the people who are getting their parents in trouble, most of all, as you've spoken about in the past. We don't have a bunch of money or the resources most adults do. Do you have anything I could start looking into to learn more about security? As the future to computer security, I think it would be nice to know what we can do, my generation could do, Well, I'll let you guys get back to saving the world. Before I do, one last thought. I realize I've been going on for a while. Maybe you could have a little segment on the show where you teach something new to beginner security experts or something along those lines. Just an idea. Thank you so much for having an amazing show. And keep on getting the word out to people. I've changed my perspective on Internet security, and I hope many more kids like me can too. See you guys. Wow, what a great letter. So, okay, two things. Uh, The bad news, Javi is behavior is the biggest problem with with security to in in today's world it is it is unsafe behavior which gets people into trouble yep. more than anything else yep. it's unfortunate i mean we'd like to have some technological solution we'd like to be, you could download something and install it and run it and and so forth, and if we had that, that would be great. That doesn't exist. It's behavior, which I know is like what the last thing you want to hear because you want to do what you want to do. But unfortunately, it's doing that which causes the problems. Right. So it's, you know, clinking, click, clicking on links from, from un, you know, questionable stuff, unknown stuff that your friends send you. Or, you know... Going to areas of the internet that are perhaps unsavory and not as safe. Um, people who stay with, you know, Google and Amazon and Yahoo and and MSNBC and and CNET, you know, they're not 
typically getting themselves in trouble. It's and when they're not go, teenagers either. <laughs> and they're not teenagers. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So there does seem to be like a, you know, a demographic sort of bias in that direction. So, so the first thing I can say is, unfortunately, there, there, there aren't any shortcuts. And the, the thing you want to hear the least is behavior is really the way to be safe. Basically not do some of the things that you're currently having fun doing uh, with the internet, which might not be safe. And the second is relative to um, segments to teach beginners. I don't know when you got hip to the podcast, but the very start of the podcast, five and a half years ago, episode number one and moving forward, we spent a lot of time laying down some foundational stuff. Which, if you haven't heard it, there's no. Uh, frankly, I recommend that more than any doing that more than anything else is go back to episode one and work your way at at whatever speed you're comfortable with forward because we we really have covered a huge amount of content in you know in a very carefully you know this builds on that that builds on this that builds on that. So, for example, when I'm talking about hashing and salt. I use the term now, assuming our listeners have have enough familiarity with it to be comfortable with it. But there was a podcast where we did nothing but talk about that. I mean, really carefully, what is a hash? What is salt? So that all that still exists, um, and and it's available. You know, with grc.com/sn for security now, will take you to that page where. The entire archive is there. And, Leo, I think people can get get, get it on TV too, right? Yeah, what we do, um, uh, uh, just so people know, is if you go to twit.tv slash SN, uh, every show is there. It's kind of a pain. We're redesigning the website, by the way. And roughly the same time the new studio opens, we will have a, a new website that will be much easier to navigate. But right now, you can go previous, previous, previous. But if you know our naming convention for uh, episodes, it's really easy. It's twit.tv slash SN and then the episode number. So number one is SN1. Number two is SN2. Number three is SN3. So you can go back to any arbitrary episode, even start with number one uh, and go forward uh, if you know that naming convention. I apologize. I, you shouldn't have to know a naming con- a URL naming convention to find stuff. And the truth is you can go, you know, there's search and you can go back and stuff. But it's, it's all there. We also, uh, you have the transcripts, which I think are great at uh, grc.com. Uh, and we also have show notes on our on our Twit Wiki. Um, almost always, most of the time, uh, I don't know how far back those show notes go, but at, for current shows anyway, um, I'll make sure that your notes get entered into our wiki.twit.tv so uh, you can search for any show note uh, there as well. So that's another cool. place. And, and actually, there's a link in, the, if, you, if you look at the show notes, there's always a link to the transcript um, and another information there. So... Um, that's that's another place to go, wiki.twit.tv. And if you are a listener and you find that useful and you want to help out, please don't don't hesitate to sign up for an account. It's free on the wiki. We do ask you to attach an email address to your name before you start editing just so we know who you are. But uh, everybody is encouraged to edit this. This is a community project, the wiki, and uh, and I think very useful. Returning to our questions. By the way, I'm just thank you. It's great to know you're listening, Javi. And uh, and keep up the good work. 
The truth is, if one in 116-year-olds listen and then you take it on yourself to spread this information among your peer group, this would be a much safer place. You know, you can be the leader here, Javi. Yeah. Thomas Kingston in Longmont, Colorado. He said he loved last week's Haystack episode, your new password technology. I've been listening to Security Now since episode one. Crazy, isn't it? And I must say, episode 303, Password Haystacks, is by far my favorite. While I agree 100% the password length plus a combination of all four character types, lower and uppercase number and special character, and a padded style is far superior in password strength than sheer entropy, there does appear to there do appear to be some examples in which your brute force password search space calculator don't match up with this logic. For instance, many websites will give you a limit on the number of characters your password can be. For example, uh, a website that allows 32 characters filling in 32 A's in your calculator leads an offline attack scenario of 6.29 trillion trillion centuries, right? Um, seems unreasonable to me. <laughs> so I figured it best to pass along the finding. Oh, I guess because if you were doing a brute force, all lowercase A's might be one of the very first things you do. So, And you didn't take that into account, I guess. So he said, I think I'd pass along the findings so people can be encouraged to use something like this after seeing the calculator's results, so in case people are encouraged. Anyhow, right. great job as always, and I really appreciate all that you and Leo do, Tom. And I think you were very clear not to use the calculator as a way to test passwords. It's not a password test. Right. There was, there, there's been some confusion, and you know, immediately after, the, right below the calculator, I say what this is not, and it is not a password strength meter. And it it can easily, because it can so easily be mistaken for one, I wanted to make it very clear. And then I drew the example that, you know, you, the, the word password, the, you know, the, the little haystack um, meter ranks as very good. But, of course, it's very bad. So this wasn't a- attempting to analyze the word for its probability of being in a dictionary or anything. It was just to say... It, what, what character set does the word occupy, and based on its length, how long would it take a brute force search to to find it? And the 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 common theme that I've received in feedback from people who took exception to this whole notion is they've said, "Wait a minute, but you could design other brute force attacks which attacked padding." And it's like, absolutely. I mean, and their point was, there is no brute force strategy for pure entropy. And they're very right about that, too. If your password is 24 characters of gibberish that's really random, there is no strategy for finding it. And so the purists were arguing that any padding that involves any pattern necessarily means that there would be a strategy for finding it. And I don't discount that either. So really the, 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 the core takeaway was to appreciate that length really does matter in a brute force search. So you wouldn't want to take, you, you couldn't securely take something really weak and add padding that was like obvious padding and feel Super comfortable with that. I would say take a password like you're already using and just extend it because you lose nothing by making it longer. And even if even if it's simple padding, that's easy to remember. You don't have to, 
you know, pad or or have the whole password doesn't have to be crazy um, complex. And so so that was really the point was, you know, yes, pure entropy has value because there's no you cannot design a strategy to crack it. Any padding, any lowering of entropy means by definition that a there could be a cracking strategy designed to find it. I'm not sure that's such a problem because, you know, don't use all dots, don't use all A's, you know, be clever, come up with something. And, and Leo, just as you're not telling us what your capitalization strategy is, you know, don't share what your padding strategy is. Don't rely on the padding, but it's just, it's an inexpensive bonus for making existing passwords stronger. Yeah, so if you go to a site that allows 32-character passwords and your normal nominal password would be 12, uh, then you just add 18 A's, and that would be good. Yes. That's not going to show no Because it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be as good, absolutely as good as what you had before, Plus. and inexpensive to pad. Right. Yeah, exactly, and make it stronger. Brian Drake in Gallatin, Tennessee, also wonders about password haystacks. He says if someone has been using LeetSpeak, oh, we were just talking about that, yeah, for a couple of years now to create passwords, I was happy to learn by using your haystack tool that this yields passwords that would take 1.6600 centuries to crack. Problem is I've run, uh, I've run into using this method, however, is that a disturbing number of websites simply will not allow you to use anything other than numbers and letters for your password, and many of these same sites have a restriction on how long your password can be. This kind of makes it difficult to use your method, and in some cases there's no choice in using a different company if you discover that they only allow you to have weak passwords. For instance, my university, I'm not going to change schools, even though they allow weak passwords only. Uh, do you have any suggestions as to what one can do in those cases or how we can get organizations to adjust their password requirements? And while we're at it, would it be too much trouble to get people to put in the password requirements, put them beside every box where you have to enter them in? It's it's a pain to punch in a password and have the system reject it for some unspecified reason. So you keep trying until you realize it doesn't like the special characters you've been typing in. That's a pet peeve of mine, too. I hate that. It happens to me all the time. Because if you use strong passwords, you will frequently run into sites that say, oh, by the way, you you know, you did you did this or you did, you, you know, that's annoying. Tell me that. Tell me up front, please. Yeah, I just I posted this for that reason. I thought Brian made some very good points. I'm sure all of us who are trying to be strong with our passwords are constantly, just as you are, Leo, running across sites where they they don't make it clear up front. It's only after you give them one, then right. they say, "Oh, no, we no. forgot to tell you <laughs> that here's the following criteria for right. passwords." Well, the fact that they have any is purely customer service. I mean, it's what they're. Their reps don't know how to, you know, wh how, what that that A with a circle around it is called an at sign <laughs> or, you know, back tick or, or circumflex. Right. You know, if you don't know the names of these things, it would be hard to explain it to somebody. But right. I don't know. It's just, again, Brian and, and listeners, we're, we're in clearly in a frontier era still. And I think things are with, with huge high publicity problems like sony is having like rsa is having um it's got to be the case that companies are going to be looking at making sure this doesn't happen to them and and um 
and you know, putting pressure on the company. When Brian asks, well, is there anything we can do? I would say, yeah. If you find yourself stymied by a, by a company that won't let you use a strong password, complain. You know, everyone's got a support link and, you know, they may blow you off and ignore it, but it's worth doing. If nothing else, you'll have the peace of mind of saying, well, I tried to give them some feedback. You know, please remove the restrictions from your passwords because I, I want strong passwords. Yeah. Well, and as you've mentioned in the past, a fixed length password or maximum length password means that they're not hashing their passwords. It certainly implies it. Yeah. We don't know for sure, but it's a it's a good tip off that because if they're hashing, then they don't need to have a length restriction. Right. So that's a bad sign. Yeah. Sony. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. John, is it Jonathan next? Yeah, Jonathan Simon is concerned about how about long but low entropy passwords. How robust are long but low entropy passwords against new brute force attacks that reorder the guessing so that it is not in alphanumeric order but rather in low entropy to high entropy order? That is, if the algorithm tries passwords that would, for example, be compressible to smaller passwords or that contain dictionary words earlier than true high entropy passwords in the Shannon sense... Jonathan. Um, yeah, I, well, I just answered that. I forgot that I had this question here. I want to make sure that I covered. In other words, yes, which is low entropy but long. Yes, I want to make sure that everyone understood that I that that I get it and that I shared with everyone that I recognize that there's that the gold standard is a long and high entropy password. Because you, you can't brute force it, nor could there be a theoretical strategy for finding it sooner than doing pure brute force. And that it's absolutely true, if you lower the entropy, then, then that, and that implies, from, from, and he, meant, he mentioned Shannon, who's of course the famous scientist Shannon, that talked yeah. about information yeah. theory, yeah. that you, if you lower the entropy, then it means that there's, there's something uh, theoretically attackable. So, I mean, I, I wanted to let everyone know, I wanted to give them the satisfaction of knowing those who, who felt that they were correcting me, that I, I get it. I understand that. But I would still argue, take something good and pat it to make it better. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and I will also say that I can't, I'm not going to tease again like I did two weeks ago, but uh, I had a really good session at Starbucks Last Thursday, the day, the morning after I recorded last week's podcast, um, and and I, it's looking good for. I have one more really cool new, really new thing to add to the whole password uh, bag of tricks that uh, everyone's going to get a big kick out of. I again, I need to do some more work on it. Uh, so I don't, I don't know, don't know when I'm going to drop the issue until. I have an announcement, but uh, and then we're going to have a lot of fun. Cool. Can't wait. Curtis in Sayreville, New Jersey, needs a secure hard drive eraser. Steve, I have a few hard drives that I need to erase. I mean erase, erase. I've heard there are programs out there that will write over the existing data and do a set amount of passes. What program, if any, do you use or recommend for this? Thanks for an awesome podcast, Curtis. It was such a an important question and a quickie that I just threw it in here, even though it extended the the length. Uh, we like Derek's D A R I K apostrophe S boot and nuke 
also known as its acronym DBAN, D-B-A-N. It's a you download the ISO, burn it to a CD, or stick it on a USB drive. You just boot a machine that's got the the evil hard drive you want wiped, and it'll do it. I mean, and it it does it really thoroughly. I think it's overkill. I I believe multiple like three or four pseudo random passes auto wipe any hard drive uh, for reasons that we've talked about before. Uh, I know there are some that do 33, and it's like, oh boy, you know. <laughs> I think okay. two is probably enough, but anyway, you know. Yeah, it 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 the the, the 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 key is the idea is you can always read back what you just wrote. That's what the hard drive is designed to do. You can, but but then if you if you subtract out the big signal that you know was written, that's going to leave the signal that it overwrote, and. And if you so if you subtract it out, then you get the signal that it overwrote, which might have been what was stored before, and that's probably the limit of what we're able to do. So my theory is, you record pseudo random data so that the so that you're. It, it, you don't know what it was you recorded, and then do it a, a second time just to sort of so that the top two layers are just absolute noise and that's going to do a really good job at at wiping out um a- anything that was stored magnetically beforehand Easy and to i find. you know yeah just google dban that's it dban finally question 12 comes to us from mark hall in charlotte north carolina it's the double header tips of the week i've been a listener since the beginning i just want to comment on the easy way to remember the Pi, which we've replaced P with Pi, by the way. Pre-internet yes. encryption uh, acronym. When sending things to the cloud or sky, it's easy to remember Pi in the sky. In other words, inter- encrypt before you Pi, or you, you, sky. <laughs> you sky. Pi before you sky. Also, when doing troubleshooting on machines that might be infected, I use a USB to SD adapter with the SD's lock. Yeah, most SD flash has lock. I think by definition and in the spec, they it have has to. to. Okay. Yeah. And so if so, he does it. He sets it to read only on the SD card. Puts it in a card reader that turns it into a flash key that's write protected. And that's what I loved. I thought that was such a great tip, Leo. Because you know, here we're like, oh, well, you know, I mean, I've got all these thumb drives around. They don't have write protect on any of them. But right. I have also have SD cards for all different things, protect. and yeah. every single one has a write protect on it. So that's a perfect solution. I mean, and there now you can get them huge SD cards. You can put all kinds of stuff on it. But right protecting an SD card and then putting it in an SD to USB adapter, you got the best of both worlds. I'm still so, I'm still wondering if that that so you're saying that's a hardware lock that prevents the you just cannot write you can't go around it software can't end around it or anything. Correct. Correct. The, there is a in, at, at the hardware level is a write is a write request line in the actual hardware spec, which you raise this wire in order to enable writing, and then it, it, it latches the data at the connector into the chip. This switch disables that. It breaks that connection so that it, just, it, it is dead to writing. You cannot write to it. Now, I remember back in the, in the antivirus days... Um, 
there were people that were getting uh, this is I mean sneakernet pre-internet when we had floppy disks the floppy drives had a notch on the side the larger the larger the the um eight was it eight and a half and and five and a quarter or eight, 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 just eight inch the, the big eight, eight inch floppies right. and the five and a quarters and then we got the three and a halfs and they had the little the little slider it's surprising back then how many right protect switches didn't work that is the discs didn't have them they just had a window that was open or closed but there was a little micro switch in the drive somewhere that you were depending on for to provide you with right protection and it was i I remember being really surprised the percentage that were broken and most people never knew because you would you would only know if you attempted to write to a protected disc and you succeeded which is normally not something you do. So the one thing I would say to people is when you lock your SD, try to write to it just to make sure the switch really does work. Good idea. Yeah. So a little double check. Steve, we, uh, we are done. 12 questions, good and true, and uh, you have answered them all to the best of your ability and knowledge. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a plan for next week? I don't. We'll see what brings. I've got a list of things I want to get to. Something could happen between now and then. Uh, If not, well, I'll pull something from the list and we'll have a great podcast. That I can guarantee. Well, I want to, before we sign off, invite everybody to visit bricks.twit.tv. We still have some bricks left. Bricks on our wall of honor. That's how we're kind of funding some of the uh, expensive upgrades we're making to our brand new studio. We call it the Twit Brick House, or sometimes the Brick Twit House, depending on your, on your mood at Be the moment. how you say that, Leo. <laughs> I didn't want to do that while you were drinking. I apologize. Yeah. If you go to bricks.twit.tv, you'll see we have regular uh, 8x4 bricks, uh, which you can inscribe two lines of 15 characters each. By the way, you can always get a duplicate brick for an additional cost for your home. So you can just like have it on your desk, which is kind of neat. We also have 8x8 eight eight bricks, larger paving sizes, and those can have four lines of text or a logo for an additional fee. And that's kind of neat if you want to put your company logo. Uh, please don't, feel, don't, don't hesitate to promote your company or yourself or your Twitter handle or your Facebook page. That's great. We love that. And I just love, I have to say, I've been looking at the first a list of about 650 inscriptions. And I just, they're so touching. They're so moving. Uh, some of them are in honor of uh, family members. Um, in fact, a good number of them are. Some of them are just thanks, you know, for Twit. Um, somebody want, did one for John C. Dvorak uh, that says, in the morning, you know, we've got uh, the Diamond Club from NSFW. We've got a whole bunch of interesting bricks. It's going to be a cool wall right behind the reception area. As you come into the new uh, studio, you'll see all the bricks there. Buy a brick and then visit your brick. We'd love to have you do that. <laughs> yes, and if you're you don't really hear you, that's not a phrase you get a chance to use often. Visit Leo. your brick. <laughs> Come visit your brick. If you're outside the U.S., you can't use the website. I do apologize for that. Uh, that's not our limitation. It's the fulfillment company that we're using. That's how they do it. But they will take international orders from their toll-free number. That means you can Skype to eight five five Twit BRX. Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific time. one eight five five TWITBRX. You can call that number if you're uh, in the U.S. too, but just that's how we do international orders. Thank you so much to all the people who have donated. We really, really appreciate your support. And I tell you, you're going to love the new studio and the things we can do with it. 
the variety of programming we can do. I think it's just going to really make a big difference. So thank you in advance. Steve, thank you for a great show. Everybody should visit Steve's website, grc.com. That's where you'll find uh, Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive and maintenance utility. You can also find all the previous shows there. You can find Password Haystacks even perfect passwords, everything's there. There's a great menuing system. And if you've got a question for Steve's next Q&A episode, grc.com slash feedback is the place uh, to go. We do this show every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern at live.twit.tv. That's 1800 UTC. So please stop by and watch the live show, but you can always subscribe after the fact. It's on iTunes. It's on the Zoom Marketplace, everywhere podcasts are. Or uh, find it on grc.com or twit.tv slash sn. And there we have it. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Great to see you, and we'll see you all next time on Security Now. Security Now.